Go ahead and open your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 4, Deuteronomy chapter 4, and we will be taking a look this morning at verses 19 to 23 of Deuteronomy chapter 4, Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 19 to 23 to 24. And would you please stand with me for the reading of God's holy, inspired, inerrant, authoritative, and sufficient word this morning, starting in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 19. And beware, lest you raise your eyes to heaven, and when you see the sun and the moon and the stars, all the host of heaven, you be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them. Things that the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven. But the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, to be a people of his own inheritance, as you are this day. Furthermore, the Lord was angry angry with me because of you. And he swore that I should not cross the Jordan and that I should not enter the good land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. For I must die in this land. I must not go over the Jordan, but you shall go and take possession of that good land. Take care, lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you, and make a a carved image, the form of anything that the Lord your God has forbidden you. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. This is the word of the Lord this morning. Thanks be to God, you may be seated. As we learned two weeks ago, the Lord explicitly and without equivocation, without qualification, without ambiguity, prohibits his people from practicing or taking part in the abomination that he calls idolatry. In any way, any shape, any form, idolatry is forbidden for the people of God in the most absolute sense, meaning any engagements with the practices of other so-called gods, Any respect given to these so-called gods, which, when you get right down to it, are demonic, is off-limits, is out-of-bounds, is profane for a Christian, and an offense to the Lord. And so what is idolatry? Idolatry is the worship of, the trusting in, the looking to, the loving, the obeying, or the appealing to any persons or things other than the Lord, the living God, our Savior, Jesus Christ. It is also taking part in the religious practices of so-called gods of the nations, no matter how benign or innocent those things might seem. In the ancient world, and also for many around the world today, this has and still does for many take the form of falling down in worship to some graven image or some carved idol. 
In times past, that might be the Canaanites bowing down to their little figurines of Baal as they set them over their mantles. It could be the Romans falling down before images of Hermes or Artemis or Jupiter. Today, even, hundreds of millions of Hindus and Buddhists and Roman Catholics venerate and kiss the feet of their statues and their idolatrous images all over the world, whether they be a statue of Ganesh, whether they be some statue of a Buddha. I went to a funeral not too long ago in a Roman Catholic church, and right at the front of it, there was a statue of John Paul doing this. And I could only imagine, as I was provoked by that statue, how many times the feet of that statue had been kissed by the people worshiping there. All of these violate the command of the Lord in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 15 and 18, the ones we looked at two weeks ago. Remember, beware lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourself in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is in the water under the earth. But idolatry can, and oftentimes does, take other forms aside from the actual worship and bowing down and kissing the feet of some idol or graven image. It can take the form of trusting in or seeking meaning in and from things like money, sex, romance, food, children, work, relationships, success, power, self-expression, and a host of other things. Idolatry can be whatever you, the idol can be whatever it is that you look to and consider more important than, more trustworthy than the Lord, and also more enjoyable to you than the Lord. Those things are idols. And the Lord condemns any worship of those things as an abominable deed. Another form of idolatry that was common in the ancient Near East during the times of ancient Israel was that of looking up to the sun or looking up to the moon and looking up to the stars and either first worshiping them as gods themselves and or second, looking to them as though they had some sort of authority or ability in themselves to chart or interpret the course of your life or to assist you in making decisions or to understand the future. By looking to the stars and seeing where they are in the sky, you could say, well, you know what? Tomorrow I'm going to win the lottery. Many of Israel's ancient contemporaries went the first route and worship the sun and the moon and the stars as gods, and they ascribe to the sun and the moon and even the stars different names. The Sumerians, for example, worshipped Nana, the moon god, and Utu, the sun god. They never give them, like, good names. They're always weird names. The chief deity of the Hittites, one of the peoples that Israel would dispossess when they entered into the land of Canaan, was Arena, the sun goddess. The Akkadians worshipped Sin, the moon god. And if you think about it for a second, Sin was the chief god in the city of Ur of the Chaldeans. And there was a very influential man who was called up from out of Ur of the Chaldeans. His name was Abraham. God called Abraham out of the worship of this god, Sin, the god of Ur, the Chaldeans, into his service. And in Egypt, the sun god, Ra, was the highest of the gods. All around Israel, all surrounding Israel, 
the peoples and the nations bowed their knees to worship the heavenly bodies and to keep Israel from joining in with the contemptible idolatry of these nations. The Lord revealed in the historical record of Genesis chapter 1 his sovereignty over the sun and over the moon and over the stars, all of which he himself created for a few distinct purposes, none of which was for them to be worshipped in and of themselves or to be looked to to find meaning, purpose, and knowledge of the future. So for what purpose did the Lord create the sun and the moon and the stars? Flip back, if you would, to Genesis chapter 1, and just keep your finger there, because we're going to spend a little bit of time here in Genesis chapter 1, verses 14 to 18. Genesis chapter 1, verses 14 to 18. There we read this. And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. So I want you to note a few things here as we look at Genesis 1. Firstly, the sun, the moon, and the stars did not bring themselves into existence. These all exist at and by the Lord's good will and pleasure. They exist because the Lord in history past said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens. None of them exist independent of the Lord's will, and none of them would exist if the Lord were to say, I cease to permit you to exist. The lights in the expanse of the heavens also, according to Genesis 1, secondly, look at it, separate the day from the night. You see that in Genesis 1, verse 14, or 15. To separate the day from the night, meaning to section off and delineate day from night. Our God is a God of order, and He orders His creation day, night, day, night. And this is, in, this is a purposeful revelation because in the ancient world, the worshipers of the sun gods and the moon gods lived in constant fear because they believed that their gods were capricious, a word meaning fickle and volatile, unstable and erratic. They believed that at any time, these gods might decide to simply move on from them, to move on from the earth, to move on from its inhabitants, because they found something more interesting to occupy their time. And if those gods chose to do that, then everything would just cease to exist. In Egypt, they believed the days were cyclical. That means that everything was recreated over again every single day. And each morning, as the Egyptian woke up from his or her bed, stretched out their arms, they would let out a collective sigh of relief that creation had not slipped into some uncontrollable chaos because Ra simply lost his interest in earth. The Lord, however, 
as he reveals these things to Israel, as he told them, I put the sun and the lights and the moon to separate the day from the night, indicated to them, and so and by so doing, strengthened their faith and their confidence in the orderly, predictable patterns God established in creation. You see, the follower of God, the follower of Yahweh, the follower of the God of Israel could be certain, unlike any of the nations around them, that with each passing day, the God who rules over it all, the God who created it all, was moving it towards its intended goal, and he was not going anywhere. And earth is gaining in productivity as a result of God's divine oversight of everything. To the follower of Yahweh, the God of Israel, it was revealed that God created his world to operate in a predictable pattern. So one never had to fear that creation might descend into chaos. Because the Lord who is the all-powerful sovereign, the Lord who created all things, set the lights in the sky to ensure the consistent, predictable alternation from day to night and from night to day. As the psalmist wrote in Psalm 104, verse 5, He, meaning the Lord, set the earth on its foundation so that it should never be moved. Meaning, it will be a predictable, orderly pattern because the Lord has established it to be so until the end. And this reality would comfort the faithful, God-fearing Israelites when they read it, when they heard it. But the Lord doesn't stop there. He also declares in Genesis 1.14 that the lights in the expanse of the sky, the sun and the moon and the stars, were also placed there, look at it, for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. You see that? So first, for signs. The word here does not refer to the zodiac or the astrological signs. Trust me, we're going to get to them in a few minutes. But instead, they pertain to the sun and the moon and the stars being created by the Lord as visual declarations, as visible reminders of the glory of God, of His power and His majesty to all peoples all across the earth. This is exactly what King David spoke of in Psalm 19 when he wrote these wonderful words. The heavens declare the glory of God. And the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out throughout all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them and there is nothing hidden from its heat. In other words, the stars, the sun and the moon shining and reflecting their light in the sky day and night are for the entirety of the world a wordless revelation of the glory of God. And they never cease, they never stop, they never halt. They are always declaring in wordless form His handiwork. They reveal to every single last human being because we are all left untouched or touched by the sun in the day and the moon at night. 
of the creative power of the divine hand of the Lord who is operative at all times, holding them and sustaining them according to his will. See the sun rising and setting like a bridegroom, leaving his chamber and running his course with joy. That indicates that no part of the world is untouched by the life-sustaining heat of the sun. So, the sun and the moon and the stars exist to publish the glory of God to every last person on earth. And it's an unceasing publish, publishing of his glory. This is what is meant by signs. These are signs that point beyond themselves to the Lord who created them. Secondly, Genesis 1.14 also tells us that the lights in the expanse of the sky are given to us for seasons. You see that? For seasons. Which meant for ancient Israel, knowing the proper times to celebrate and observe the feasts and the festivals that had been set down for them by the Lord. Read, for example, Exodus chapter 23, where the Lord said to his people, Three times in the year you shall keep a feast to me. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread, as I commanded you. You shall eat unleavened bread for seven days at the appointed time in the month of Abib, for in it you came out of Egypt. None shall appear before me empty-handed. You shall keep the feast of the harvest of the firstfruits of your labor, of what you sow in your field. You shall keep the feast of the ingathering at the end of the year, when you gather in from the field the fruit of your labor. Three times in the year shall all your males appear before the Lord God. This is what is meant by the seasons, the appointed times for which the Lord called to existence the lights in the expanse of the sky. The sun, moon, and the stars provide for the people's fixed reference points in which to hold these feasts, offerings, and observances commanded by the Lord. While we don't celebrate these things, we do have a liturgical calendar that we follow loosely in the sense that we uh, celebrate Easter and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ at Easter, and we celebrate the Lord taking on flesh and making his dwelling among us, or the fancy theological term, the incarnation at Christmas time. The Lord established the sun, the moon, to determine and to set those as fixed points. Thirdly, the greater and the lesser lights, according to Genesis 1.14, have been established by God for days and years. Meaning, they, by the Lord's good will, furnish creation with order and predictability. Days will go on. Years will pass. This is an expected scenario, and it is a grace given by God to his creation. It is a grace of God that you don't have to go to bed at night and worry whether the sun is going to rise tomorrow morning or not. Now, I want you to also to notice something in Genesis 1.16, the very intentional wording here. The avoidance of names for the sun and the moon. Did you notice that when we read it? While the nations around Israel, as we've already seen, would give the sun and the moon names for the purpose of worshiping them as divine, as deities in and of themselves, the Lord, as he recounts to Israel the history of creation, calls the sun the greater light, and he calls the moon the lesser light. Did you see that? In so doing, the Lord reveals to us that these heavenly bodies are not God's. They are instead his creation. And he rules over them. 
The greater light is dependent upon his upholding and his sustaining power to burn as brightly and as consistently as it does. And the lesser light is dependent upon the Lord for its capacity to reflect and illuminate light. They both perform their duties by the Lord's oversight and by the Lord's decree. They are not independent deities operating in accordance with their own wills, but they are what we call contingent bodies, meaning they are dependent bodies. They depend on the Lord and they serve our Lord's good purpose. And the fact that Genesis account does not give them names robs them of any supposed divinity and presents them to Israel as what they truly are, created and owned by the living God. The Genesis account also reveals to the reader that the sun, the moon, and the stars are not eternal, contrary to some of the uh, beliefs of the ancients. They have a definite beginning. Their definite beginning was the fourth day of creation. The history of Genesis discloses this to us, that they serve the Lord's creational purpose and as they do, when they are understood in this way, that they proclaim the handiwork of God, that they're for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. When they do that, Genesis 1.18 tells us God saw that it was good. And I want you also to notice one more thing about this Genesis account here. The way that the phrase, and the stars, is tacked on to the end of 1.16. Do you see that? Created the sun, the moon, and the stars. As if to portray them as an afterthought. The very things that all of the nations around Israel worshipped as gods in themselves are tacked on to Genesis account as though they were an afterthought. The purpose for saying it in this manner is to communicate to Israel and to communicate to us that the stars possess no divine qualities, nor is there any sort of hierarchy within them as many ancients believed. The brightest stars in the sky do not rule over the duller stars. Star number seven does not rule or, or order star number 77 around. They have no power in themselves to do anything except what God created them to do. And even though many have believed and many still do believe that the stars and their movements and their alignments can somehow predict the earth's destiny or they can be consulted when some big decision needs to be made in one's life, let me just make this clear to you. They do not possess any such power. Again, the very stars that some worship as gods... The very stars that many of the ancients and some in our world today look to in idolatrous fashion were created and scattered throughout the cosmos by our Lord. And for what reason? We looked at a few of them as we perused the day four of creation, fixed points in which to observe festivals, to display order and predictability that the Lord has established in creation, and to know years and to count time. But scripture has more to say. Psalm 148 says this, Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise Him in, his, in the heights. Praise Him, all His angels. Praise Him, all His hosts. Praise Him, sun and moon. Praise Him, all you shining stars. Praise Him, you highest heavens and you waters above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for He commanded and they were created. 
So the psalmist here is calling for all of creation from the tiniest worm to the largest of the celestial bodies to praise the Lord, to testify either actively as the angelic hosts will do, as they shout, for example, in Isaiah 6, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Or in Revelation 7, amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. That's active praise. When we sing our songs, Here, this morning, we are actively praising. But the psalmist calls also on the sun and the moon and the shining stars to do the same, to praise and glorify the Lord. And they do this passively by testifying to the glory of God as they function according to God's intention. The lights in the expanse of the sky declare the glorious handiwork of God and they serve yet another purpose as well. Scripture has still more to say about the purpose of the sun and the moon and the stars. Listen to King David write in Psalm 8. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. Do you see what David is saying here? To look up to the sun and the moon and the stars, to look up at the moon, especially on one of those, one of those nights when the moon seems so close, so massive, so bright, so spectacular... And you consider the very God who put that moon in its place. And you realize that the living God who created this moon is infinitely more splendid, infinitely more dazzling, infinitely more impressive than what you see in the sky on that most beautiful night. And when you note, as David says, that the heavens are the work of God's fingers... You see, the Lord is so omnipotent, He is so indescribably powerful that the heavens that so impress us when we look to them were placed here not by the power of God's arm, not by the power of His hand, but by His fingers. The choice of words is designed to help us meditate on the all-surpassing power of the Lord, which is beyond our ability to understand or to express. And as you meditate on the power of the Lord, note this, God is mindful of you. As in, God pays attention to your life. You might think to yourself, to my life? What are you talking about? To my life? A God so holy and so majestic and so powerful and so wonderful as the living God cares for and watches over the human race and even more for his children, for those who trust in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to those who have turned to Jesus and are saved by grace through faith in his name, the Lord, to all of you, the Lord loves you. The very God who put the sun in the sky or in the, in the heavens He loves you with a tender and compassionate affection. That's what David's getting at here. 
Well, let me just ask you, can you believe that? I just want you to imagine for a second. Think about this for a second. Think about how difficult it is for us to love each other. You and I are all well aware of everyone else's shortcomings, right? We're all well aware of each other's faults. Hopefully you're aware of your own. I know many of you are aware of mine. And even so, the Lord, the eternal holy God, as irritating as you are, as irritating as I am, as full of faults as you are, as full of faults as I am, the Lord who set the sun and moon in place loves each one of you, his children, with an indescribably strong and steadfast love. And also know this, that person who so irritates you, God also loves them with a strong, indescribable, steadfast love. When you look to the sun, when you look to the moon, and when you look to the stars, they are to point you beyond themselves to the omnipotent, powerful God who loves you. The same God who placed the sun, the moon, and the stars in the heavens. He loves and cherishes each one of his children with a love beyond anything that you and I can imagine or describe. The same idea is found in Psalm 147, where we read this. Praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God, for it is pleasant, and a song of praise is fitting. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the outcasts of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted and binds their wounds. He determines the number of the stars, and he gives to all of them their names. Great is the Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. The Lord lifts up the humble. He casts the wicked to the ground. Did you see it again? The same Lord who determines the number of the stars and the same Lord who gives to every one of them their name. The same Lord who is abundant in power. The Lord who is worthy of all the songs of praise we sung this morning and all the songs of praise sung by every believer throughout every generation. This Lord who is wise beyond measure. This is the same Lord who gathers up the outcasts. This is the same Lord who heals the brokenhearted and binds up the wounds and binds up their wounds and lifts up the humble. And if that's you this morning, if you're one who is enduring a season of brokenheartedness, I mean the Christmas season has a tendency or a capacity to be one of the most joyful seasons or one of the most painful, depending on your situation in life. If you're one who's wounded, if you're one who is sensing the sting of maybe being an outcast then turn to and find rest in the arms of the Lord Jesus Christ. The very God who determines the number of the stars, the very God who gives all of them their names, is the very God who calls to you right now and offers to give you rest and peace and healing. He is the very God whose grace will save you. The very God whose grace saves you. The very God who leads you home to his eternal family. So as you look out at the sky and note the sun and the moon and the stars, 
Let them point you beyond themselves to the perfectly gracious, perfectly compassionate, perfectly, perfectly loving God who, guess what, listens to your prayers, who hears your heartaches, and who will answer you by holding you in his glorious and compassionate arms. So yet another purpose of the heavenly bodies is to reveal that amazing truth. That the Lord, while being so infinitely amazing that He is the creator and the sustainer of the beautiful and monumental bodies like the sun and the moon and the stars, is the very same God who remains close to His children. The God who knows each and every one of us. He knows me, He knows you, and He's always there to bind our wounds, to heal our hearts. He is the God who calls on every one of us to cast our anxieties and our difficulties upon Him. And why? Because, as James says, He cares for us. So, knowing that all of these are the purpose for the sun and the moon and the stars and all the host of heaven, the Lord then commanded Israel in his love as they were about to enter the promised land to verse 9 of Deuteronomy 4, introduction over. Beware in verse 19, meaning watch out for and do not give in to the temptation to be drawn away and bow down to them, meaning the sun and the moon and the stars, and serve them. Again, for Israel, this could take the form of a more Egyptian-style idolatry where they named the sun and the moon and the stars and then bowed down to them. But it also took the form of looking to the sun and the moon and the stars as guides for life rather than seeking the Lord and living according to His wisdom. The Lord actually has a term for such practices. We read it in Deuteronomy 8, when he says, or 18, when he says this in verses 9 to 14. When you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominable practices of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering, anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium or a necromancer or one who inquires of the dead. For whoever does these things is present tense and abomination to the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God for these nations which you are about to dispossess, listen to fortune tellers and to diviners. But as for you, the Lord has not allowed you to do this. So the specific phrases we're going to focus in on here is that of telling fortunes and divination. These refer to the pagan practice of using different devices to divine or to foretell the future. These devices could be things like throwing crystals on a table or jewels or bones or whatever and reading the patterns as they lay on the table. It could also be, and is oftentimes, looking to the stars, noting their placements in the sky and using them to tell someone's for future or to help them make an important decision in their life. It's also tarot cards and things like that. Now, I just want to make an important distinction here. We're talking about astrology not astronomy. 
All right? Astrology is the practice of seeking to discern insight or information about world events, future events, person, people, personality types, uh, by looking to the position of the stars and the planets. And this is kind of part of our regular conversation, right? You might hear someone say something like, um, Ev- all the stars aligned and so this happened, right? That's an astrological, we borrow that, that phrase is borrowed from the astrological world. Or you might say, hear someone say something foolish like, yeah, I'm a little energetic, but that's because I'm a Sagittarius. I don't know if that's what, you know, but you know, they, they would say something like that. That's also from the astrological world. Horoscopes, tarot cards, zodiac, all of that. It's all bunk, by the way. At best, it's bunk. At worst, it's demonic. Modern-day horoscopes and astrological practices and zodiac signs, they all fall under the banner of this fortune-telling and divination, and the Lord says these things are an abomination to the Lord. And hear the word again from Deuteronomy 18.12. Whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. Do you see it? This is a serious sin, a sin that must be repented of by anyone who claims to be a believer. And if you're not a believer, repent and turn to Jesus and leave that off too. But if you claim to be a believer, this should be repented of immediately. The Lord says again in Leviticus 19.26, you shall not interpret omens or tell fortunes. And Israel even though the Lord gave them these express warnings, would later on in the future take part in such things. We read, for example, in 2 Kings 17, verses 16 to 18, we read that they abandoned all the commandment of the Lord their God and made for themselves metal images of two calves. And they made an Asherah and worshipped all the host of heaven and served Baal. And they burned their sons and their daughters as offerings and used divination and omens and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. Therefore, meaning as a result of all of that, the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them out of his sight. Do you see the response of the Lord to Israel's idolatry and their practice of divination and fortune telling? It provoked the Lord to anger. And the Lord, as a result, removed them out of his sight. Also, the single most evil and wicked king in Israel's history, a man named Manasseh, is described in 2 Kings chapter 21, verse 6, as one who burned his son as an offering and used fortune-telling and omens and dealt with mediums and necromancers. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. Now, we will, in the future, as we work through Deuteronomy, speak on what it means to offer sons in the fire and mediums and necromancers and things like that. But for this morning, we're honing in on the evil that is fortune-telling and divination and the fact that it provoked the Lord to anger and is considered an abomination in His sight. And as the people of Judah and Jerusalem were on the verge of being carried into captivity... There were these false prophets coming around. And so Judah, or Isaiah, declared the word of the Lord to Israel, saying this You, meaning Lord, you, Lord, have rejected your people, the house of Jacob, because they are full of things from the east and fortune tellers like the Philistines. 
And during the reign of King Zedekiah, not too long before Babylon would cart Judah off into captivity, there were so-called fortune tellers and diviners moving about through Judah, telling the people that, you know, these people who were inquiring of the stars, inquiring of the dead, inquiring of the spirit world, they went around telling the people of Judah, don't worry, it's all going to be all right. I can see it in the stars. You will never be carted off to Babylon. You will never have to serve the king of Babylon. To which the Lord responded through the prophet Jeremiah in chapter 27, verse 9 and 10 of Jeremiah's prophecy. Do not listen to your prophets, your diviners, your dreamers, your fortune tellers, or your sorcerers who are saying to you, you shall not serve the king of Babylon, for it is a lie. It's not written in the stars. There is no way it could be. So visiting, listening to, consulting, practicing, fortune-telling, or any sort of other astrological channel and apparatus, in every instance in Scripture, provoked the Lord to anger. Now, someone in here might say, that seems so rigid, seems so legalistic, What's the big deal if I check my horoscope when I'm reading the paper or when I'm reading my magazine? Because, you know, they're everywhere, right? What's the big deal if I'm waiting in line at a mom-and-pop donut shop and I pick up one of those pieces of paper that have the funny jokes on them and they have the astrological zodiac on there and I just kind of take a quick peek? What's the big deal? Is it really that bad if I attribute certain personality traits to the zodiac in, in laughter and in fun? What about when I sit with someone at a carnival? You know, those, those people who tell your future at a carnival, they're always good for a laugh, right? Are you really telling me the Lord cares about such things? Aren't you just, aren't you just being a little, a wee bit too strict here? Gino, loosen up. I'm not being too strict. The answer to that question is no. This really is a big deal. And it is not, as you've heard me say over and over, it is not rigid and it is not legalistic to exhort the people of God to follow the commands of God. To look to Him and to Him only as the authority in our lives. To look to God who rules over all things to the exclusion of stars and spirits and the dead. Listen, you want to know the answers to life's questions? Open your Bibles. Call to mind the Scriptures. It is there you find truth. It is sinful and it is foolish to look in any other direction for wisdom in your life, for advice in your life, for, ad for information about the future. See, the Lord calls called and he calls his people to complete distinction and complete separation from the world and its ways. I want you to hear it from both Leviticus and the Apostle Paul. Leviticus 20, verses 26 to 27 says this, You, speaking to Israel, you shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. A man or a woman who is a medium or a necromancer shall surely be put to death. They shall be stoned with stones, and their blood shall be upon them. 
See, people might go and say, blame the Lord for that, but the Lord's very clear. Don't do it. And if you do, you will be stoned by the leadership in Israel and your blood will be on you. In the New Testament, the principle of complete separation remains. Not the stoning part, but the separation part. The Apostle Paul will make it clear in 2 Corinthians 6. Listen to it, it's well known. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? The answer, the implied answer to every one of those questions is not anything. Not, there's nothing. For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God and these shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst, meaning the world's midst, and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you and I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord God Almighty. Did you see it? There is no fellowship and no agreement between light and darkness. And the call to you who claim to be children of the light is to be separated and completely distinct from the things of darkness in the world. To a complete and total distinction, to an avoidance of all of those things that would defile, like fortune-telling and the idolatry of the sun and the moon and the stars. And why? Why such separation? Why such a clear command to separation? It's because as the Lord told Israel in Deuteronomy 4.20, the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, to be a people of his own inheritance as you are to this day. Meaning, it wasn't by the might of the sun or the stars or the moon that you now live as those liberated from enslavement to Egypt. In fact, I revealed, the Lord says, I revealed to you in those days when I brought you out of that iron furnace that it is me who rules over them. You remember those days. Hearken back to those days, O Israel, as we read in Exodus 10. Hearken back to those days when the Lord said, when I said to you through Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. And Moses did so and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all Israel had light where they lived. And it is the Lord who has delivered the people of Israel, delivered to them his laws and his commands and his statutes that they might do them and they might live by them in the land as the people of his own inheritance. And it is the same Lord who has given to you and to me this day his holy word to guide and direct us who love him and who serve him this day also. The London Baptist Confession puts it like this. The Holy Scripture is the only sufficient, certain, and infallible rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. So the Lord here, in reminding Israel that it was He who delivered them out of enslavement in Egypt, in essence says, or in essence asks them, why would anyone, especially you, O Israel, when you have witnessed and watched me, the Lord, with my mighty power and outstretched arm, deliver you. 
When you have heard the holy, righteous, and perfect law that I have given to you to govern your life, why would you turn to anything else? Why would you look anywhere else but to me as the authority and truth in your life? Why would you ever think to bow down to any carved image, praying to it and asking it for help and guidance? Why would you ever look to the sun and the moon and the stars, to the creations that I put there that are designed to glorify my name and point you to me? Why would you look to them and consult them when I have revealed my will to you, when I have established my truth for you? To the Christian today... The same question is asked of you. Why would any of us look to anything other than God's holy, inspired, inerrant, authoritative, and sufficient word for any definitive and reliable guidance for life? Why, when every single one of us has the scriptures in hand, has the spirit in our soul, and has the Savior by our side, look anywhere else? What do the stars have to tell you that Scripture doesn't tell you much more clearly? So I have three questions. These are three questions that people seem to want to know and why they'll go to astrologers and things like that. Question number one. Do you want to know who you are? Do you want to know who you are? If so, let me just start here. Forget the personality tests. Most of them spring from pagan, atheistic roots anyway. And look where? To God's Word. Stop moving and going to atheist psychologists and atheist counselors. Most of them will you think of your faith as a symptom of your problem and try to heal you of your faith. Why would you go there? No. Look to God's word. You want to know who you are? Look to God's word. You open up God's word. You study God's word. If you are a believer, you will learn this, that you are saved by grace through faith in Christ. You are God's, Christ's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. You, Scripture says, if you truly love and believe in Christ, you were once dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love, made you alive together with Christ. And he has raised you up and he has seated you with Christ in the heavenlies that he might display the immeasurable riches of his kindness toward us in Christ. That's who you are. You don't need to look to an, an, an I don't even know how to say it. Anagram, anagram, right? Don't look there. It's pagan. It's awful. Open God's word. Throw all that stuff out. Question number two. Do you want the most solid and trustworthy words for how to make the best decisions in your life? Or how, where do I turn to make the best decisions in my life? What is the most secure foundation upon which to build my life? Does anyone know the answer to that question? The rock, the scriptures. Study and meditate on the scriptures. Solomon made it clear. 
Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. And as the Apostle Paul said, writing to his protege Timothy, listen Timothy, evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. And as this happens all around you, Timothy, as this happens all around you, fellow brother and sister in the Lord, remember all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. Now, not before I get to question three, not only does the scripture tell the believer who they are and provide for the believer the foundation upon which to build life, but the scripture also declares something to you in here if you're not a believer this morning. And it's not very flattering. The scripture, if you are rejecting Christ right now, the scripture says you are a fool. You are a wretch. You are a sinner. You are an enemy of God, an enemy in the sight of God, who while you might think you do good things, do nothing truly good in God's sight. Because without faith, it is impossible to please God. So Scripture calls on you to lay down your foolishness, to lay down your senseless, meaningless, pointless life. Because if you don't believe in God, that's what your life is, right? It's a senseless, meaningless, pointless life. Turn to Christ, be saved, dwell secure in Him. And the third question, kind of the biggie that everyone wants to know, why they look to their horoscopes and why they go to fortune tellers is, do you want to know the future? I mean, do you truly and really want to know the future? Well, I have the answer for you. Read the Bible. It's all there. Jesus told his disciples in John 14, in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so... Would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. And in Revelation 21, John wrote this as he saw in a vision. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. It's all there. We don't need horoscopes. We don't need fortune tellers. We don't need to look to the stars. All of these practices are lies and abominations anyway. What we need is God's word. As the psalmist wrote, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my paths. My path. And should there be times when you feel like you need some wisdom and information that you can't seem to find... The Lord tells us this by way of his servant James in James chapter 1, verse 5. He says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. 
who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. Turn to prayer. Lord, I need wisdom at this point in my life. What are you trying to teach me? What's the decisions I should make? What should I do? Point me to a section in your word. Something. Now, knowing all of this, that it is the Lord you shall serve, the Lord you shall ask, the Lord you shall devote the totality of your heart, soul, mind, and strength to, knowing that the Lord has delivered you and saved you, knowing that the Lord has delivered to you and revealed to you His will in the Scriptures, knowing that the Lord is near to His children whenever we call on Him, knowing all of these things, the Lord said to Israel in Deuteronomy 4.23, Take care, lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which He made with you, and make a carved image, the form of anything that the Lord your God has forbidden you. Meaning, with tremendous care and painstaking effort, Separate yourselves from any and all forms of idolatry. Because the Lord is God and there is no other. The Lord does not allow for any competition in the hearts of His people and for all who would forget and turn to idolatry, who would suppress the knowledge of God in order to worship false gods, to them God will prove to be a consuming fire. You want to know your future unsaved? man or woman here today, to fall into the hands of the living God without salvation by grace through faith in Christ, he will prove to be a consuming fire that will crush you and you will be tossed into the lake of fire for eternity to suffer eternal conscious torment. If you would avoid that future, then the offer of salvation The call to repent of sin and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ is held out to you. Come to Christ. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and scripture says you will be saved. And as you do, in closing, hear and obey the word of the patriarch Jacob when he said to his household in Genesis 35 two, put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Or in other words, leave behind every single idol, every single falsehood, every single lie and turn to the way, the truth, and the life and serve him with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and all of your strength for your good and his glory. Amen. Father, thank you for this time that we had to have this morning to open up your word, to hear your truth, to be reminded of the fact that there's going to be a number of things competing for, our, for shelf space in our mind, and we have to take care. Take care to always remember that if we're going to look somewhere for truth, it is your word and your word only. Father, I pray that you would give us the ability to put away from us all things that you find abominable. Help us to be separate and distinct. Help us to shine as lights in the world. 
Help us to be ambassadors that reveal to everyone the glories of living a life of service and submission to the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the greatest life. It is the most meaningful life. It is the most joyful life. And we thank you for setting it down for us in your word. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.